0: This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church, located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. I heard a story a few years ago about a grandpa who was feeling his age... And that shopping for Christmas gifts was just too difficult. So on this particular year, he decided to send checks to everyone instead. And in each Christmas card, he wrote, buy your own gift, love grandpa. And then he mailed them early. Well, he enjoyed his usual flurry of activities and was only after the holidays, he noticed that he had received only a few cards in return. And so he was a bit puzzled by this. He went to his den, intending to write a couple of his relatives and ask what had happened. It was then that as he cleared off his cluttered desk, he realized that he had forgotten to include the checks in the cards. (laughs) And the Christmas card said, buy your own gift, love grandpa. (laughs) Every other religion, every other philosophy out there essentially says to you, you go buy your own gift. Make sure your moral and religious performance tips the scales in your favor. Buy your own gift. As Christians, the gift-giving season of Christmas reminds us that God didn't send us a note saying, buy your own gift. He gave us the greatest gift ever given. One we could never give ourselves. Let's take some time to meditate on the greatest gift. John chapter three verse 16. "For God so loved the world, that He gave, gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Whether it's the signs held up during field goals, Tim Tebow's eye strips, the bottom of In-N-Out Burger Cups or Forever 21 shopping bags, this verse is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. Martin Luther called this verse the Bible in miniature because it contains the heart of God's entire message. It contains the greatest gift ever given. We'll think about it in three headings. The greatest gift, the shocking recipients of it. The exorbitant cost of it and the means of benefiting from it. The shocking recipients of it, the exorbitant cost of it, and the means of benefiting from it. Number one, the shocking recipients of it. It is extraordinarily shocking that God loves the world. Now you might think, Pastor, how could you say such a thing? My kids are absolute cuties. (laughs) Never in need of correction. Our family is kind. I myself am a lovable little fuzzball. Free of any characteristic others might find unappealing. How can you say it's shocking God loves the world? Well, language is a goofy thing sometimes. In the early 90s, I was living in Green Bay and our cousins from California came to visit My cousin Jeff and I were listening to some Christian music. When one particular song came on, he turned up the volume and he said, Hey Brian, listen to this one. This one is totally bad. At that time, living in this mid-sized, Midwestern, blue-collar city of Green Bay, I knew of only one definition to the word bad. And it didn't make sense to me that one would turn up the volume to listen to a song characterized as such. Seeing the confusion on my face, he, in his, I'm from California, therefore I'm on the cutting edge of everything, manner, said, yes, it's a really awesome song. That began my two-week infatuation with using the word bad (laughs) in this most hip, trendy, and absolutely asinine way. Until I realized using this word this way is just, well, bad. (laughs) Language is a goofy thing sometimes. To understand how my Californian cousin was using certain terms required me to spend some time around him. Seeing how he's using these words. I need more exposure to figure out what he meant. So too with scripture. In this specific case, John's use of the word world. If we understand how John uses the term, we'll see why it's extraordinarily shocking that God loves it. Let's get some exposure to it. John chapter one, verse 10, he, Jesus was in the world and the world was made through him yet the world did not know him or John seven, the world, Jesus is speaking, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about that that it's, works are evil. John 14, even the spirit of truth and the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. A little later in John's gospel, Jesus said, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. And then he finishes with this. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. See, when we typically use the word world, we use it to refer to the earth, the globe, the mountains, the oceans, the hills, all that God has made, including the earth's population. But John is using the term differently. John's using the word world in a different way. Refers not so much to the world and all its bigness as to the world and all its badness. And not in the early 90s Californian vernacular. Did you hear what Jesus said? The world is described as the place that hates the disciples, the place that hates Jesus, that does evil, that cannot see the spirit, that does not receive the spirit. It is that realm of fallen humanity who is in ruthless opposition to its maker. That's the world. And God loves it. This world of which you and I are a part is the shocking recipient of the greatest gift ever given. Second, the exorbitant cost of it. What did God give the world in all its badness? Verse says his only son. Now the way this is phrased probably intends us to reflect on this truth in light of our love for our own children. Unlike our heavenly father and his only son, we are corrupted by sin. Sin. Still, it is natural for us to love our children with great intensity. Mothers exhaust themselves, rocking babies to sleep. Fathers spend long hours fixing bikes and playing games they would have no interest in if it weren't for their kids. Parents weary themselves with extra jobs to clothe and feed and educate their children. To neglect our children, as many do today, is so universally condemned. It's it's appalling to think about. Why would you not? Nature knows of no greater love than a parent for his or her child. And Christ is God, the father's only child. The scriptures make a very big deal about the father's love for his only son. You think you have a lot of love for your kids. Consider this. Matthew. We read, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Or in Matthew 17, he was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Or John 17, Jesus is, Praying, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. The father's love for the son is hard to describe. There was a story of a severe famine that hit Germany many years ago. The father of a poor family struggling to survive proposed to sell one of his children to obtain food for the rest of the family. His wife reluctantly consented and they began thinking about which of their four children to sell. They refused to part with the oldest, their firstborn, and they could not give up their second who looked like his father. The third child resembled the mother and the youngest was their Benjamin, the child of their old age. So they decided to perish rather than part with a child for relief. They couldn't do it. They couldn't part with any of their kids. John Flavel, writing in the 1600 says, what is a child but a piece of a parent wrapped in another skin? And yet our dearest children are but as strangers to us in comparison to the unspeakable dearness between the father and Christ. A parent's love for a child pales in comparison to the father's love for his only son. And this son whom has lived for eternity in relationship with his father. He gave him to us. He parted with him. But the exorbitant cost of the greatest gift giver given isn't just seen in the fact that the father parted with his, his dearest and beloved son. It's also seen in what the father gave him for. Consider this. The most costly gift you've given to someone else was likely received with favor. It was well taken care of. That piece of jewelry, that new 50-inch snowblower, partaking of Lexus' December to remember sale. (laughs) Costly gifts are treasured. But to what did the father give the son? In the end, not to be treasured, but ridiculed. Not to be blessed, but to become a curse for us. Not for the sake of his own flourishing, but unparalleled suffering. I mean, it breaks our hearts to watch our children suffering, especially under the pains of death. But the father watched as his son struggled under agonies no one had ever felt before. He saw him falling to the ground, groveling in the dust, sweating blood amidst those agonies, turning to the father and pleading to have this cup pass from him. The father gave his dearest son to a world that hated him, rejected him, and ultimately crucified him. Can we even calculate the cost of that gift? During the darkest times of World War I, a war that claimed the lives of a shocking number of English sons. A man took his boy out for a walk at night. The boy noticed that some of the houses had stars in the windows. That comes from this terrible war, laddie, the father explained. It shows that these people have given a son. They had walked a bit farther when the young boy stopped and pointed up to the sky where a bright evening star had appeared. And he said, Daddy... God must have given a son too. Leon Morris remarks, that is it. In the terrible war against evil, God gave his son. That is why, that is the way evil was defeated. God paid the price. The greatest gift ever given came at a cost we may never fully understand. So what's the means of benefiting from it? Gifts are meant to be benefited from. What's the means of that? God has given the world and all its badness, the greatest gift ever given his only son at an exorbitant cost. So how do we benefit from the gift? According to the verse, it says whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now there is a lot that gets packed into this simple and often used word believe. What does it mean to believe? Believe. It's obviously important because the one who does so will have eternal life. So there is a lot riding on getting this right. To frame this in the form of a question, what is saving faith? Throughout the history of the church, pastors and theologians have proposed, we think about faith in three categories. It's knowledge, conviction, and trust. Knowledge, conviction, and trust. This is actually a very good synthesis of the Bible's teaching on faith. There is clearly a fraudulent faith that includes knowledge, but neither conviction nor trust. Jesus' half-brother James writes in the New Testament about the fact that even the demons possess a kind of fraudulent faith that includes knowledge. I don't think it's a stretch at all, in fact, to say that Satan knows the Bible better than any of us. Knowledge is not his problem. Yet, clearly, he has no saving faith. So if even Satan has an abundance of knowledge, then saving faith is obviously more than that. It's knowledge plus conviction. Conviction that a certain proposition or idea or story is true. For example, when we say that we believe George Washington was the first president of the United States, we are affirming the truth of that proposition. There is a conviction that George Washington was indeed the first president of the United States, But saving faith goes beyond even this, because these two operate within the mind only. Now, saving faith is not less than cognitive, but it's also more. It includes trust, commitment. It's not enough to merely affirm that certain statements are true. We have to embrace them personally trusting ourselves to them, committing ourselves to what they mean. Imagine a ship, an ocean liner, filled with people crossing the Atlantic. And in the middle of the ocean, there's an explosion. The ship is severely damaged and slowly sinking. Most are dead. And the rest are rushing for the lifeboats. Now suppose one man does not know about the lifeboat. So he does not get aboard. He doesn't have knowledge. So he's not saved. Suppose another man knows about the lifeboat and has the conviction that it will save his life, but he is grief stricken over seeing his wife killed. And so he chooses not to get aboard and dies with his wife. He has knowledge. He has conviction, but he is not saved others have knowledge of the lifeboat conviction, it will save them and they get into the boat. They are saved by faith. That is, they have knowledge, conviction, and trust. With all that's riding on what this verse says, it's worth asking yourself the question, do I have saving faith? When the angels announced to the shepherds Jesus had been born in Bethlehem, They declared the role he'd have savior. Do you understand what it means that Jesus is savior? It means he's not first and foremost, your teacher or your moral example, but savior. So when you stand before God one day, what do you plan to say to him to convince him to admit you into his eternal kingdom? What good deed or godly attitude will you pull out of your pocket to impress him? Will you pull out your church attendance, your family life, your spotless thought life, the fact that you haven't done anything really heinous in your own eyes? I'll tell you what every Christian whose faith is in Christ alone will do by God's grace. They will simply and quietly point to Jesus and say to God on account of his life and his death, And his resurrection, admit me into your kingdom. You see, those on the sinking ship are not saved by their faith, no matter how much they have. They're saved by the lifeboat, the thing in which they have put their faith. Saving faith trusts Christ, and Christ saves. Do you have saving faith? Alistair Begg tells a story a couple of Decembers ago. He writes, I was sitting next to our Christmas tree the day after Christmas. And I looked down and there was a small box sitting under the tree just by my hand. I picked it up and turned it over and it had a label on the label said for Alistair. Oh, I said to no one in particular, there's a present I haven't opened. I knew what it was by looking at it and shaking it. It was golf balls, which is of much needed gift for a man of my inability on the fairways and of course surrounding areas. I knew what was in it, but I still needed to open it so that I could use it, enjoy it, benefit from it. Christmas is the time of year when we remember the greatest gift ever given Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life we could never live. And died in our place the death that we all deserved, so that by faith in Him, we will inherit God's kingdom paradise. Have you opened that gift? Or have you left it under the tree? Perhaps you've never noticed it before. Or maybe you've seen it but ignored it. The greatest gift ever given is for you and you desperately need it it's got your name on it open it receive it get jesus into your life or better yet get you, get your life into his let's pray gracious God we are astonished by your love a love that would part with your precious son to secure eternal life for people like us who have treated you with contempt and indifference that you would go to the lengths you did to offer us eternal life is simply staggering you so loved the world that's us that you gave your one and only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Activate this belief in those where it currently lies dormant. Give them eyes to see their name written on this gift so they may know, truly know the joy you intended to provide us through your son.